0: Welcome, everyone, and good evening. My name is Kim Case, and I am filling in for Steve, who is tra- traveling, and I want to welcome everybody for joining us this evening for the session on 21st Century Learning and STEM with Charles. And we hope that you have, enjoyed, that you have joined the Lawrence Central community. If not, we encourage you to check it out and join and participate in many of the webinars that occur each day through the community. And Steve also wants to let everybody know about the global education conference coming up in November. It will be free and open to everybody. And it will be a virtual conference that's online. So if you're interested in participating, you can go to the global ed globaleducationconference.com website and then you can uh, sign up to participate or present and see how you can get involved in that conference. Steve has some great sessions coming up at the end of September and in October and November so we hope that you will join him for those sessions. And he's had some fantastic people on just like Charles. Um, talking about various topics, and those recordings are available uh, through Learn Central as well as on the futureofeducation.com website. If If you're new to Illuminate or you haven't been in to an Illuminate session recently, I'm going to go over a few of the features that we'll be using tonight. We'll be using the whiteboard tool. And specifically the laser pointer in just a bit. Over in the far right or the far left just below the participant window are some emoticons and the hand hand symbol with the green up arrow. If you would like to use your mic towards the end of the session to ask a question then you can click on that and we will um, give you the mic. You can also submit your questions and comments here in the chat. And let's go ahead and if everybody would click on the laser pointer which is to the left of the little hand and then click where they are tuning in from in the world. And this is always interesting to see where everybody's joining us from and tuning in from. Lots of folks from the United States and Canada, and it's great to see Europe, Australia, South Africa. All of those things are um, great, and we're so glad that you've taken time to join us this evening or in the morning, wherever it is, it, whatever time it is in your part of the world. And now I would like to welcome our special guest this evening. And I'm going to go ahead now and pass it over to Charles. Take it away, Charles.
1: Thank you, Kim. So first of all, a very quick uh, hello and test. Uh, Would everyone raise their hand if they're hearing me OK? Okay, 40 or so hands raised out of 78. I'm going to say this sounds like a yes. Okay, well hello everyone. And so thank you for taking the time. Thank you for being with us. Clearly we have a lot more uh, attendees than during August. Uh, Looks like everyone is back to school. And uh, so thank you for being with us on this session. We're going to talk about 21st century skills and its intersection with STEM, as in science, technology, engineering, and math. All right? So feel free to stream your questions via the chat window, although uh, to avoid cognitive overloads, I will not be looking at them until later during uh, this hour. I will stop periodically and see if I can answer questions on the fly. And also, Kim will be there to help me tabulate some of them. Yes, thank you, Kim. All right, so with that, let's start with um, a quick refresher. A number of you have been on the earlier sessions we've done on 21st century skills. So I'm not going to spend a lot of time going through that. Just a quick refresher will come in the next few slides. Um, A lot of the concepts are described in this book of mine uh including uh, examples from uh, really interesting leading edge schools that are uh, available on the DVD that comes with the book and uh we've been very blessed to be endorsed by um Harvard and Stanford so bi in the US in terms of um, uh kudos so very happy about that and um I hope wherever you are in the world, you propagate the concepts we're going to be talking about here, because they're the ones that matter to a better society at large, a more educated society that not only has knowledge, but knows how to apply that knowledge through skills. So that's going to be the the point of the conversation today, and uh, the agenda will be, Uh, What are the the 21st century skills that we've been talking about? How do we deploy them in a more granular way? And what about STEM specifically? What's the intersection of STEM with those skills? So the key messages I would like to leave you with, and because we all know it's already late in the evening for those of us on the East Coast and end of the long day for those on the West Coast, and who knows what time for those of you in uh, the Philippines or the Middle East or wherever. Um, I would like you to leave with the following concept. It's about rethinking what is relevant and applying it in education so that it is about knowledge that is applied, not just knowledge that's known theoretically. And therefore, the application of knowledge is about skills. In other words, you don't learn how to fly a plane simply by reading the manual, do you? So, and the embodiment of teaching for skills is via projects. We'll we'll talk about why in a moment. And technology becomes an enabler in that context. All right, um, so with that. I will quickly remind you that the Partnership for 21st Century Skills was founded by Cisco and a few others that are circled in red here. Very interestingly, you note that the National Education Association, the US largest teacher union, uh, was also part of the founding team, because they very early on knew that this was about enabling the teachers to teach for more than just the bits of knowledge that were measured by um, summative assessments. So you will also note that the American Association of School Librarians is part of this, as well as international logos, such as Lego, Crayola, Walt Disney, McGraw-Hill Education, and, and on and on. So this is really a rather global effort that's taking place. And to date, in the US, we have the following 15 states that are partners with us and more on the way, meaning that they have pledged to revamp their standards and assessments to match the requirements for 21st century skills that we're going to be discussing in a moment. and uh Martin, to your question, where's New York New York is not on board yet. um we have done a bit of s- uh, some studies for New York, for the Board of Regents about how their curriculum looks like in terms of twenty first century skills, but not quite there they're not quite there yet, and same uh, Carol uh, regarding Connecticut, not a member yet, however, there are things you can do even at the classroom level, at the district level, or at the school level, irrespective of where you are in the world. Now, look at this. This is also a global movement. Uh, This is not only about the United States, although here the U.S. is represented at at the federal level. This is also an effort that encompasses countries ranging from Australia to Singapore. And we're talking here about countries that are very high-ranking in PISA, like Finland and Singapore. So this was an effort that was put together by Cisco, Intel, and Microsoft in partnership with the OECD. And we have called it ATC21S. You can see there the website. And I encourage you to go and look at what they're working on, which is namely how to compile and document how to assess 21st century skills. So how do you assess? communication collaboration critical thinking and so on and how and to develop the assessments that are concurrent with all of that so again quickly the framework as i said it's uh, it's available on the P21 website and the book as well the framework is about student outcomes that go beyond merely the core subjects. And of course, we are saying the core subjects do matter. Knowledge does matter. There's no such thing as skills devoid of knowledge. But we're also saying that to function in society and in organizations, one need to know how to apply the knowledge. And that's why we recommend that knowledge Uh, be accompanied by skills such as life and career skills, learning and innovation skills, and information media and technology skills. And these would be from an outcomes perspective. From a support systems perspective, we know that for that to take hold, we need to change the standards, the assessments, curriculum instruction, um, professional development, and the learning environments. All of these have to be changed for the model to take hold. So what are the implications? It's a question of designing for time and space. So it's a question of depth, not just breadth, which has been the case in the past. There has been a study done about, for instance, the US curriculum. And again, I apologize for those of you who are not in the US, but just as an example, in the US, a study has shown that it would take 22 years to teach what is supposed to be taught in 13. That was done by McCrell in the 1990s. And what happens because of that is that wherever a teacher goes deep into one topic, it's not because the topic has a particular significance. It's it's typically because the teacher is more comfortable with the topic. And so the deep dives are very infrequent, infrequent, haphazard, and not necessarily well thought through. If, however, we were to rethink the curriculum as in As here in this uh, Greece example, we would realize there are some areas of the curriculum that are more important than others. so, for example, democracy in Athens versus autocracy in Sparta or philosophers and scientists bear a lot more meaning and significance than say the bronze ages or the Persian Wars in polemic egypt so First of all, when we talk about rethinking depth versus breadth, it means making the harder choices that we haven't made so far. And that is really important, because there's already too much to teach and learn. And if on top of that we have to overlay skills, we get into simply implausible situations. So we need to free up time and space so we can do the deep dives on these areas of the Standards in the curriculum that matter a lot more than others, so the framework of course talks about core subjects, uh, the ones that we're all familiar with, uh, meaning your native language and world languages and, and on and on math science etc, but also interdisciplinary themes such as global awareness, financial literacy, civic literacy, and so on and of course, each country will decide to put more or less emphasis on some of these themes we think that the following ones here are just broad enough. And here's the skills framework in more detail. I'll let you read so as to not uh, add to the cognitive overload. So as you can see, we're talking about Three classes of skills: critical thinking, problem solving, creativity, communication, collaboration, but also ICT literacy, the ability to sift through information and to understand it, and a, lo- a number of so-called um, attitudes skills, you know, such as flexibility, adaptability, productivity, leadership, and so on. So. Yes, we are talking about a matrix between the core subjects in one direction and the skills in the other direction with, um, as a thread perhaps, some of the themes. For instance, wouldn't it be nice to learn about financial literacy by weaving through mathematics, meaning subjects such as compound interest, with history, such as the history of bubbles? and social studies, such as um, herd behavior, and do a deep-dive project on that. And so we can, through the project, exercise the various skills. To help you in this task, we have worked with the NSTA, the National uh, Science Teachers Association to come up with a matrix that puts in one dimension each skill, one after the other, and then at the fourth grade, eighth grade, and twelfth grade levels, examples and outcomes that we'd like to achieve. And so we have those maps, not just for science, but also for English, for social studies, for arts, for history, for geography, and soon, hopefully, for mathematics in the next six months. So part of this rebalancing implies, as I was alluding to earlier, teaching for skills, not just for knowledge. And how would you do that? If you merely lecture to students, you will clearly not be able to exercise their communication collaboration skills. So they have to get off their seats, and rather than simply listen to a lecture, they have to go and do something. And so I use project here in a broad sense, meaning designs, inquiries, simulations, all sorts of engagement mechanisms that go beyond merely sitting and listening passively. So to give you an example, here's uh, fractals in pre-calc 11th grade. I asked this uh, student what uh, they did in that project. And they said, well, I've done a lot of research. downloaded music software, wrote a paper, spoke to the class, played the CD of Bach's Fuse, and then played Beethoven on the piano to show them how we go from very theoretical and very mechanical fractals to more pleasant-sounding fractals by injecting a bit of uh, 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 smart randomness in the system. And so this student went from being a B in this honors math class to being an A-plus on a project. Well, that's the good news. The bad news is that this was not part of the US requirements for No Child Left Behind, and it did not fit either in the Massachusetts test called MCAS. So unfortunately, what was really interesting was not at all a requirement. Now, look at what was going right on the student side and on the teacher side. Let's focus on the teacher side. You see they have mapped the various skills with what the teacher w- was or was not doing with, with that student. The teacher did challenge the student about the existence of other sensory fractals. Uh, this, the teacher did also uh, allow for a certain level of multidisciplinarity, meaning music in this case and was open-minded to allow for the the, um, exploration of auditory rather than merely visual fractals like everyone else in the class. So that was great. What could have taken place, and that didn't, was to test the transfer, the applicability to other disciplines. So how do you take the concept of fractals and apply it into other disciplines? And has the student really understood the concept of self-similarity in fractals. Uh, the student was not challenged to create their own fractals, so the creativity aspect was not stressed. Collaboration was not stressed either. It was solo work. And the cross-cultural aspect was rather weak in the sense it was only Western music. Non-Western music was not explored at all. So. Even a great project like this could have improved. And because a lot of you are teachers, I'm giving you this quick example here to show you how uh, very simply, even in the confines of your daily work, you can stress some of these aspects in your students. And look at at the tests, unfortunately, that go with this. Um, We can go from very, very simplistic multiple choice tests to almost comical questions. Two much more sophisticated things that are done, for instance, here in Australia. So I know we have a couple of attendees from Australia. And uh, Queensland, for example, was uh, doing this sort of work here related to biotech and exploring ethical dimensions. So I'll give you a few seconds to read what's highlighted. And by the way, whomever is from Australia, raise your hands, please. Thank you. That's Darren, I take it. So all right. So you've had enough time to read. As you can see, this is quite sophisticated. So what we're talking about really is moving from simplistic multiple choice summative assessments to assessments that are authentic and problem-based and assess multiple dimensions of the learner. But we're also talking about doing this in real time with many more formative assessments that would be done across the instructional cycle. That would be really performance-based and assessing multiple dimensions, including this most important of skills, creativity. So let's delve deeper into STEM in particular. Um, isn't this interesting? Look at what the future, World future society predictions are about the top 10 breakthroughs in transform- life transformation over the next 20 to 30 years. The top 10 breakthroughs are all related to technology in one way or another. And what is also very interesting for all of us, particularly on a call like this, is number eight, virtual education is considered one of those huge breakthroughs transforming society. So, so, let's look at STEM, and what do economists say about the impact of STEM on innovation? So take a look at this. I'll give you a few seconds. Now, as you can see, um, it uh, it dings the legal discipline for its uh, slowing down economies versus uh, uh, engineering adding to the economy, and that's true. That's true, but only to a certain point. Meaning, the rule of law is necessary for stability in a country, and if you don't have that rule of law, your engineers will simply emigrate out. And second. It is also important to keep in mind that sometimes the limitations to GDP growth are there because we want to safeguard other, other things that are harder to quantify via traditional GDP measures, such as, for example, pollution. You know, a, a lot of um, countries had polluted, industrialized countries had polluted themselves and are happily diverting a portion of their GDP to cleaning up and not polluting again. Whereas, for instance, China has not quite gotten into that way of thinking yet, and so yes, it is important. Growth is important, but again, so is survivability and uh, quality of life. And so here are more proof. Here's more proof about the impact of STEM. Eight studies showing that science and technology have produced annualized returns ranging from 20 to 67 percent. Half of the US's growth in GDP per capita during the past half century is attributed to STEM achievements. MIT alone in the Boston area where I reside has created 1.1 million jobs in 4,000 new companies. That's astounding. And so we, we certainly have proofs here and there of the importance of STEM. The question is, what can we do about it? Well, it turns out that STEM is not only about direct careers, and we certainly will talk a lot more about that in a moment. But I also wanted to highlight that it's also about the indirect careers, what I call influential professions, and frankly, STEM for every citizen. And we always talk about engineering careers and so on, but we um, forget uh, the other three categories. And numeracy matters for everybody, right? So indirect careers, for example, where we have not only engineers in corporations, but also the support systems around them, such as marketing and sales and finance and so on. And then we have influential professions that we wish were more uh, STEM uh, numerate: Journalists, for example, so they would not make misleading representations, or finance people, so they would not melt our global economic system. Or lawyers who would waste a lot of billable time on low probability outcomes, corner cases in contracts. Or politicians who do not understand non-linearities, and in this case, in the situation of global warming. Or doctors in their prescribing the appropriate treatment. So these are just some of the influential professions that you would want to have be more uh, numerate. And then, quite frankly, every citizen needs to understand risk in personal finance and in gambling and things like that, or health, Um, issues related to risks of cancer and airbag deployments and vaccination and cell phones and flying and so on and so forth. But really it's a question of understanding life itself. Concepts such as diminishing returns, the example here is a log curve or geometric progressions, such as exponential curves, or um, optimal points, such as n curves, or learning curves, S curves, or distributions, um, in this case, a normal distribution, like the, the bell curve, and so on. So we really want numeracy for a lot more than just those who end up in engineering and science careers. And I'll let you enjoy this little cartoon making fun of those who said, well, just teach both theories and let the kids decide what makes sense. So should we be teaching them chemistry or alchemy? And on and on. So yes, everything doesn't have the same weight and the same veracity. So we need to be a bit careful about what gets taught and the ability of students to decide on their own what is real and what's, uh, well, uh, misleading at at best. Now look at this data. Don't you wish that uh, high school graduates would know that 19 out of the top 20 bachelor salaries are STEM-related? I mean, look at this, out of the top 20, only one is not STEM, and that's construction management. All of the other disciplines, from aerospace to chemistry, they're all about STEM. And uh, we wish career counselors were discussing this with students. Now, it does not mean I'm sorry. If you also look at uh, the graduation rates in STEM in the United States, you see that as a percentage of the total population, it's much lower than Korea, Japan, or the European Union at large. So we certainly have a problem in the US in particular. And in terms of test scores, It is unfortunate that the U.S. keeps on dropping further and further in math and science. And you can see here we've dropped uh, significantly compared to countries such as Finland. Note that the excuse that some countries are more um, ethnically diverse than others does not hold true. Look at Canada, doing extremely well. Overall, on average, it's number two after Finland in all three um, subjects of the PISA tests, its second highest combined scores. And number three is Australia, which is also a very ethnically diverse country. So the US cannot claim that it has a society so distinct and so ethnically diverse that uh, it cannot do as well as as uh, Finland or South Korea. Now, if we look at raw numbers, of course the raw numbers are scary because, after all, China and India have a population much larger than that of the United States. And so China is already way ahead in terms of raw numbers of uh, bachelors and equivalent degrees. But then again, they have three times, I'm sorry, four to five times the population size. And so if you adjust the population size, the numbers are not quite as bad, at least for the United States. But overall, in time, it's clear that uh, the US will never have as many engineers and scientists as places like India and China. The laws of numbers simply do not support that, of course. Other countries that are smaller, like Canada or Sweden or Australia and so on, have always known that it was not just a question of numbers, that they had to have quality as well. And if you look at quality of engineering, uh, according to this McKinsey study, only 10% of Chinese engineers would pass uh, by global standards, and 25% of Indian engineers do. So it's not just a question of quantity. It's a question of quality as well. So let's talk about uh, math specifically here. There are profound and simple concepts that are not digested. So never mind talking about skills in general. Just the basic knowledge concepts, such as linear versus geometric progressions, are not understood intuitively by most of the population. a lot of people get enamored by growth rates rather than the actual value of the growth. So we could have 500% of something really small as a baseline, um, as a growth rate, which really matters much less than 5% of something rather large. And so that's a sort of understanding that isn't there very often. Also, numbers-wise, we have a hard time conceptualizing very, very large numbers. Um, so we will go and focus on $5,000 that a politician might have spent uh, on, uh, or, or uh, have gotten as a free uh, plane ride, but we would not pay attention to a trillion dollars worth of deficit that the same politician would have incurred. So uh, clearly, our deeper understanding of math concepts matters. And here's an example of relevance. Uh, that's one of my uh, pet peeves. Uh, if you look at the various disciplines that I'm showing here on the left, from anthropology to zoology, from philosophy to physics, and you map the various mathematics branches, you quickly realize that after numbers and operations, meaning arithmetic, statistics and probabilities are the second most important field in terms of its breadth of application to a large number of disciplines. And yet, is far less taught than algebra, calculus, and geometry. So why are we spending this much time on trigonometry, which matters to very few users out there, and so little time on probabilities and statistics? So if we were to rethink curricula with an eye towards relevance, this is the sort of harder choices we'd be making. And according to John Alan Paulus, who am I citing here, author of Mathematician Reads the Newspaper, um, logic, I mean, statistics and logic constitute the foundation of the scientific method. And so if we're serious about science as well, we need to teach statistics and probabilities a lot more. And you're right, Kim. uh, Statistics and probabilities get covered if we get to it which, by the way, is telling in terms of the lack of preparedness by the teacher body uh, themselves for for one, but also the fact that they're underrepresented in the various acceptance exams and tests. And so somehow we consider that Algebra 2 is a must-know to get into college, because that's somehow a proxy to uh, logical thinking. But never mind that most people will never use Algebra 2 ever but could use statistics and probabilities a lot more. And so, again in math, stressing creativity, creativity doesn't have to be stressed only through arts. We can stress um, how to not just solve an exercise or a problem or even a class of problems. We can stress that we need to use non-standard solutions in solving a problem or even creating new problems or classes of problems with their solutions. And so I encourage you to go on TED.com and search for Dan Meyer. And he has a cute little video about how he deconstructs a math problem and how he really forces the students to think with very, very few words rather than seeing them guided to the solution by the way the problem is asked. And uh, we'll address uh, some of these things during the Q&A, uh, particularly Craig's comments about uh, teachers who cannot show real examples. So um, I know that some of you earlier on had talked about, uh, well, where where's, where are the arts uh, team rather than just STEM? And yes, uh, we agree arts ought to be represented for creativity stand- from a creativity boost standpoint. But also, remember that we have wrung out the fun out of mathematics by removing the fun things, the recreational mathematics, the tessellations and the tangrams and the, the puzzles and all of that. We have removed all of that from the curriculum, yet that's what draws younger children, in particular, to the joy of mathematics. And for science specifically. So science is uniquely real-world relevant, very naturally so. And it's very naturally project-based as well, because it relies a lot of inquiries and investigations. And it could be done multidisciplinary much more easily than many other disciplines. However, we stress too much the natural world, but we don't spend enough time on technology and engineering. Let me give you an example. At the turn of last century, physicists came up with quantum mechanics. Well, it took another 30 or so years to transform quantum mechanics into the laser. And it took another 30 or so years to transform the laser into the essential component of a DVD player. Well, none of that would have happened if we had only stopped at science, at the science of physics we had to go through technology and engineering to make it happen into innovations that were GDP augmenting and lifestyle augmenting. So that stresses again the importance of not just science, but also its application into technology and engineering. I discussed earlier how profound concepts are not digested and um, how multidisciplinary science is rarely done particularly when it comes to soft and hard disciplines, hard sciences, meaning by that, very often people who work in the so-called hard sciences, like physics, look down on the quote-unquote softer ones, like psychology or anthropology and so on. And heck, even mathematicians, very often you see mathematics and statistics, rather than considering that statistics are already a part of mathematics. Somehow, statistics is the lesser child. And so we have this. um, macho-ness, this uh, arrogance about some of the the disciplines and how they perceive themselves compared to others. And that's simply unacceptable. Very rarely do we see the bridge between the scientific concepts with the non-scientific disciplines, such as, for instance, history. Why did we get to use base 60? Well, because of the Mesopotamians. Why did the Mesopotamians started using Base 60? Well, would anyone want to volunteer the answer to that? Yeah, I'm going to ask the question to all of you. Why did the Mesopotamians started using Base 60? Feel free to answer via the chat. You don't even have to raise your hand. So a couple of you are answering about time. One person has answered about fractions. You're getting close. Yes, Tammy, it has tons of factors. Congratulations, you got it. That's it. Base 60 has a lot more dividers uh, than base 10. So when you are dividing plots of lands, it's much easier to have to you be using base 60. Because at the time, they had tables of dividers and division results the same way that today, or until recently, we had tables of logarithms. So yes, that's, that's the answer. They, that's why. So of course, that sort of historical context is never taught. You know, Yes, some innovations were purely theoretical. But a lot of them were also due to the environment where they were required. For instance, geometry was considered a necessary skill by the Greeks, a necessary, I'm sorry, piece of knowledge by the Greeks, because for drawing battle plans, you need to understand topology and how to orient your armies and so on and so forth. Well, we still teach a lot of geometry, even if most of us will not be leading armies into battle. And so that's the sort of rethinking that doesn't take place and that we need to pay attention to. So um, this is a bit verbose, and I apologize to you, but a lot of you will have access to this text to read at, at, their, leisure, at their leisure. So I'm going to ask that you please try to follow me. Um, this is an urban legend circulating on the web about Niels Bohr and how he was asked to determine the height of a skyscraper with a barometer. And of course, the canonical answer is, well, you measure the height of the building by putting the barometer at the top of the building, measuring the air pressure there, measuring the air pressure at the bottom of the building, applying the formula, and boom, you get the height of the building. But what's fabulous about this little urban legend is how supposedly he went and devised a number of other non-canonical answers really interesting ways about, for example, tying the long piece of string to the neck of the barometer, and then lowering the barometer to the ground and measuring the length of the string. And all the way down to my favorite, which is to exchange the barometer for the information by giving the barometer to the janitor of the building. So very amusing, but it just shows that this is the sort of thing we should be stressing in the students, not just giving the right answer, the only one canonical answer, but also the non-standard solutions as well. So that's what we're talking about here when we talk about exercising creativity across um, other disciplines such as math and science and so on, forcing the student to go beyond the mere obvious. And um, the OECD has also looked at uh, interesting factors about where uh, where gender plays a role. And so we see where boys versus girls do better in the U.S. and OECD on, the, on average, and uh, looking at parameters such as knowledge about science scale or ident- identifying scientific issues or using evidence. Where girls do better than boys in some areas where boys do better than girls, now it remains to be seen how much is um, uh, is a social environment fostering this sort of thing, but it's certainly something to be aware of and try to understand and lastly, the social factors need to be addressed um, perhaps most importantly than anything else because they dwarf some of the advances we can make otherwise. The fear of math and science by a lot of people who are not familiar with them, starting with parents uh, who will give unwillingly the vibes to their children, their young children, by saying, oh, I don't know this, so go ask uh, your mom or your dad or whatever. Or the teachers, who themselves may not be very familiar or comfortable with a given topic, particularly in elementary school, may give off these bad vibes. And then there's also the scorn of geek, you know, that society de- dependent. Some societies pay their sports people and entertainers a lot more money than they pay um, en- engineering or uh, scientists. And so, and the social recognition also may be much lower. So we have to pay attention to these factors because they may be much larger than uh, simply the push strategy of trying to induce students into these disciplines. And lastly, we do have fears of offshoring of some job categories, and they're overblown, but they are present and they need to be addressed head on. Well, so Michelle, you're saying that you were laid off by big pharma uh, because of offshoring. Well, it is a very interesting question, because this is something I've debated with my own daughter about, well, should she go into biotech at all? Could could she be offshore? And yes, to a certain degree, and that is part of the discussion here. To what extent is um, is it doable, and for what types of disciplines? So I don't know exactly where uh, that takes place. I can tell you that there are a lot of jobs that I participate in that I see around me that are not offshoreable that are uh, related to these disciplines. So like everything, and this is actually another presentation I have, is the level of uh, routine versus non-routine work you may end up doing in that job. Anything that's relatively routine does get offshored. Anything that's non-routine is harder to offshore. And uh, I will just remind everyone that this is not particularly new wisdom. Um, This is something that has been known even since the first constructivist uh, out there, Confucius, who used to say, you know, I hear and I forget, I see and I remember, I do and I understand. So the concept of learning by doing was already present. And Aristotle's way of doing was about teaching. And Michel de Montaigne talking about preferring a mind-shaped rather than a head full. And with that, we'll open the floor to your continued questions. So, Kim, do you want to come up with uh, some that you have uh, compiled?
0: Yes. Um, Dora asks, who determines what is important to learn, and why is it important?
1: Yes, excellent question. So this is something that uh, uh, I'm personally very involved with, and I will be researching over the next few months. Um, Typically, what has happened is this constant uh, battle between the psychosocial argument and the economic argument. Should we be teaching for better citizens, or should we be teaching more for employability? Really, it's both, right? It's not an all proposition, it's an and proposition. But over the last few decades, it can be argued that because subject matter experts were devising curricula pretty much in in their own sphere, they haven't been influenced by what is applicable. Let me give you an example, a personal example. I was asked to help um, a state in the US come up with their new math curriculum related to skills. And I went, and I made a presentation, and I did the same for science. And what happens? They thank me, they listen very politely, they take notes. And then it's always the same group of people who go back behind their own closed doors and redesign the math curriculum. And those are the same math experts that have been around for a number of decades. So do you think that these math experts are going to have the worldly view that says, you know what, we really should be cutting out or severely curtailing geometry in favor of statistics and probabilities? No. What, that cannot happen just with math experts. The math experts need to be surrounded by subject matters fr- experts from other disciplines, from anthropology to zoology, and from practitioners that are not academics, from architecture to transportation to what have you. Only when we get to this sort of broad collaborative approach will we be able to have a better view of what is significant and what is relevant from a broader consensus than simply the subject matter experts looking at the concept of relevance from a very narrow perspective.
0: Thank you. And another person asked. Um, how do we reconcile the split in teaching communities between science and humanities?
1: I'm sorry what was the question again? how to
0: recon- how do we reconcile the split in teaching the communities between science and humanities in the classroom and in professional development?
1: Yes, absolutely so um, let me let me give you a, a, a little quote that I saw in a in a uh, in a comment on the web once. uh, It was about a a, a debate like this on the New York Times. um, And someone said, and I love that little sentence, said, STEM is what gets you your job, and humanities is what makes you shine in your job. And I like that very much, because it underscores the importance of both. It's not a question of being an engineer who cannot communicate and collaborate, neither it is a question of uh, of uh, a discipline that doesn't have employability, you know, not everyone can be a uh, a scholar of uh, anthropology. There aren't that many positions open. So um, the combination of the two is what matters. And if you ask me, cold, what should, what would I recommend? A a 50-50 split, smack in the middle. Why? Because there's no scientific way to ever decide that sort of thing. I'm just saying, both matter. Next question, Kim. And
0: Theo, go ahead. I mean,
1: Kim. Sorry.
0: Yes, uh, thank you, because that's such a wonderful explanation of this. Because what bothers has, what has bothered me with STEM is that it doesn't show that balance, and um, it. It is all on the uh, hard science area. Um, has that been addressed within the program itself of how to kind of bring the humanities element into it?
1: Unfortunately, it has not. But that's why I talk about this sort of thing because the opinions are always um, um, always too extreme. Right? It's either. You know, stem does not matter. No one pays attention to it on one side, all the way to the other side where people are saying without stem we're toast. And reality is in the middle. You know, all these things do matter. It's what makes us rich and complete individuals. And so that's the sort of balance that I'd like to see in the in the discourse. And that's why you see me uh, talk about these topics is because I don't find this balance. People go from one extreme to the other, pretty much like in any opinions that are. Um, about education, you have you know people go all over the place uh, without a sense of balance. and you saw me also talk about for example projects versus uh, constructivism versus didactic approaches again, an issue of balance, not one or the other. Um, it's a question of balance between the two in appropriate balance.
0: Great, thanks feel and Courtney, you have the mic? Courtney asks, "How do we develop a curriculum that fosters creativity and individual thinking?"
1: Yes, I, I, I'm just reading it. Thank you, Kim. So, so Courtney, what I'm what I'm suggesting here is that um, first of all, we need to um, to debunk the misconceptions about creativity. Um, children are not more creative than adults. It's just that they're more reckless in expressing their opinions than adults. Um, adults can be very creative, too, if they're in the right frame of mind and the right space. Um, so that's for one. Uh, second, we, in a sense, it is normal that through education we would learn to weed out um, the freaky or cra- crazy ideas. But every once in a while, There will be one that we shouldn't have. But what we also misperceive is all the the bad ones that we did weed out appropriately. So this weeding out process is essential. Now that's on one side of the, the conversation. On the other side, yes, it is true that we could encourage creativity a lot more. Some of the techniques I've shown here simply push the kids to create their own classes of problems or non-canonical answers to problems and on and on. So those are some of the techniques that that can be used. Now as to devise an entire curriculum around that, that's a different story. Um, it, is, uh, it is doable, let's say, on a, on a case-by-case basis, piece-by-piece. And on an entire curriculum, that may uh, force a discussion about between um, the ba- in the balance of what is imposed on a, on a generic basis for everyone versus what is uh, done individually with personal self-expression. And that's where uh, we need to figure out where the right balance is. How much of it should be uh, student-centered on their own choice versus um, a stable and coherent base of what they ought to know across the board. But what I hope I have shown is that even for the stable coherent base, we could teach it in a way that uh, um, forces creativity to be expressed rather than only have it expressed when the child has full latitude to do so.
0: Great, thank you. Men um, asks, should we be teaching science, math, and art, or should we be teaching children?
1: Um, I'm not sure about where the question is leading to, so I'll ask for a clarification there.
0: OK, she's typing her comments in the chat. Okay, it was part of a a conversation thread earlier. Holly asked how many okay. questions will twenty first century learners how many colleges excuse me will welcome twenty first century learners over traditional learners with high AP scores?
1: Ah, so basically this points to the difficulty and at the next step of uh, of their education rights because um, colleges are still using very traditional metrics of acceptance, at least at least most of them. And clearly, uh, SAT scores still matter. And college, and, and I'm sorry, high school transcripts do matter, and grades do matter. And I had this conversation with my daughter, where she told me one day, well, let's see, Dad, you spent your whole life telling me that I should learn for the knowledge itself and the skills. And now, all of a sudden, you're telling me, oh, yeah, but the grades matter, too. I said, well, look. The grades do matter because we are in transition. First of all, there will always be some form of assessment. But note that the better colleges are using more than just grades. I mean, there were 3,000 applicants with perfect SAT scores at Harvard. So how do you choose which one, if everybody has perfect SAT scores? And even in different colleges with different SAT scores, we know that portfolios and activities of the student and so on are all the things that colleges do take into consideration. So it's not only about grades, but it's certainly a lot about grades. And we have a system that needs to accommodate both and do the grading part more intelligently than it has been doing so far.
0: Excellent. And um, somebody asked, what can teachers or curriculum coordinators do? in order to further 21st century skills if the math experts who are mandating curriculum don't realize, for example, that probability and statistics is lacking?
1: Well, there's uh, only so much you can do bottoms up. That's why I'm working at trying to change the system from the tops down, working with uh, countries and states and provinces to change the standards that they ask to be taught. Um, But even at your level, you can always try to spend a bit more time on those topics that, uh, at least intuitively, you would understand are more real world centric, until you get the air cover from the institutions changing from the top.
0: And um, there's a question. What do you know about programs that enable students to get real world experience like from professional mentors using real tools and answering real questions, then discussing this, their experience back in the classroom.
1: Um, there are plenty of such opportunities out there. Um, I, I've mentioned a number of them in my book, but there's, all, you know, for instance, the first robotics, the first robotics competition, um, that is eminently. Uh, real-world centric with number of tools. As you know, robotics is such a multidisciplinary uh, field, uh, ranging from mechanical to electrical to computer science to um, uh, physics to uh, mathematics, and on and on, to also, in this case, competition-friendly, collaborative, communicative, et cetera, et cetera. So that's one example of a fabulous program that bridges along a number of disciplines and skills all combined. And there are plenty of programs like that all over the world. It's just a question of getting hold of some of them and really uh, embedding them into existing systems.
0: And that's absolutely essential. Ed asks, can open source software help to create these new combined curricular activities?
1: Um, yes, yes to a certain extent, but not, I mean, I don't view that as a particularly large component of this. I view um, open source materials for projects, for example, being uh, an essential part of this, but not necessarily open source software, per se.
0: Well, he mentioned combining learning experiences and allowing the math experts to be influenced by the statistics or music perspective.
1: I'm sorry, wh- wh- what was the question in that?
0: He continued that question about the open source software by allowing the math experts to be influenced by the statistics or music perspectives, and he mentioned about combining learning experiences.
1: Okay. Okay, well, um, if you would like to ask uh, add a question to that, I'm happy to answer. But Actually, we're so out of time, I believe.
0: Yes, we definitely are out of time. Um, we want to thank everybody for joining us this evening. And can you play, um, type in the link, um, Charles, to make sure that people were asking about where the maps and the objectives were that you were sharing earlier? And I want to make sure that they that the right site was posted in the chat for
1: them? Uh, you mean for uh, the science standards that I showed, uh, the, the NFTA uh, documents?
0: I believe so, because somebody asked where they could find those objectives. Were they in the book or on the website?
1: Okay, so that would be p21.org, and look under uh, documents. You will find, they're called maps, uh, simply the, the map. You'll find the science maps, uh, geography maps, and so on. OK. Uh, let me see if I can quickly go there. Uh, let me Give me just a second. Sure. And I'll uh, get you the exact URL.
0: And thanks, Carol. I just wanted to make sure that we get that in again. We appreciate that. And we want to thank everybody for joining us this evening. And we do hope that you will explore the Learn Central community at learncentral.org. The recording will be posted as well as a listing of all of the future sessions that are coming up with Steve um, as part of the future of education and the community has lots of different webinar series Um, people were talking about the session with Dan Meyer with the math 2.0 session so I encourage you to check those out and we want to give Charles a round of applause so if you could Click on the applause symbol and let him know how much we appreciate his time and his information. And we just thank you again, Charles, for joining us this evening. And I'm happy to fill in for Steve. Steve will have the next session on September 28th, where he'll be interviewing Paul Peterson on saving schools. So you'll want to tune in um, for that session as well as check the Learn Central for the archives and resources. So have a great night or evening or morning wherever you are in the world. And again, we thank you for joining and we hope to see you online.